Do you want to listen ad-free? You can do that now by joining our Patreon or hitting that subscription button on Apple Podcast. Spotify listeners, we've got you too. All you got to do is in your Spotify app, search The Murder Diaries ad-free. Today on The Murder Diaries, we're speaking with Heather Bish, whose little sister Molly was murdered 23 years ago and whose case remains unsolved to this day. In our conversation, Heather tells us all about who Molly was, what it was like when her sister went missing and the subsequent search that happened. And finally, she touches on her family's years-long journey to justice for her sister, proving she's a force to be reckoned with in the true crime community. Now, here it is. We are here with Heather Bish. Thank you so much for being here today, Heather, to speak to us about and to honor your sister, Molly. Her 40th birthday is coming up on August 2nd, and June 27th of this year marked 23 years since Heather's sister, Molly Bish, was abducted when she was 16 while she was working as a lifeguard at the Commons Pond in Massachusetts. Her life was taken from her, and she was found about three years later in June of 2003, just five miles from her family home. Now, Heather, I don't want to speak for you or your family when it comes to describing Molly's case. Um, Is there anything you'd like to add or correct about that intro? Oh, no, that was perfect. (laughs) You know, I would just say it remains an unresolved and unsolved case to this day. Let's start by talking about who Molly was as a person and as a sister growing up and as the 16-year-old that she was when her life was taken from her. We know that she was previously described as athletic and smart and she played soccer, was college-bound. Yes. she. So my family moved from Detroit, Michigan to a small town in Massachusetts when I was three years old. My parents had gotten nervous. There was a a woman who was murdered down the street from where we were living in Detroit. And they thought, well, we'll be much safer in this small town in in Massachusetts. So our family, you know, grew and developed in in this small town. We bought a house a mile from my dad's mother, my grandmother. So she, you know, we could walk and ride bikes to her house. And my brother came um, very shortly after we moved to uh, Massachusetts And then my sister arrived three years after that. So, you know, we were a lively family. Molly was uh, born at home, actually. My mom was very much into um, the La Leche League and natural things and herb gardens. And and so I was able to watch Molly come into the world at six years old. I hadn't really known the importance of it then, but I certainly look back and, and see that now. But I remember it being a magical day and, you know, just touching her tiny little fingers and toes and thinking this is like my baby because I, at that point, I was sick of playing trucks and cars with my brother. So <laughs> I was really looking forward to having a sister to, you know, sort of have the same interests and 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 grow up together and, and have sort of this like built-in best friend. And and Molly really was that. She, she actually emulated both my brother and myself. She was an athlete like John. She played three sports, even starting the first soccer team at our high school for girls. So, you know, she was very much like becoming a lifeguard because my brother was a lifeguard. Yet she loved like the same music that I like, making hemp 
bracelets and necklaces and listening to classic rock and roll music and, you know, shopping. And, and we shared some of those, those interests together. So she was really just beginning to have an adult relationship with us. But Molly was very, very empathetic person. She loved her friends. She loved her friends' families, often calling some of her friends' mother's mom too. Or I often tell the story of how in art class, she would have these really more severe special ed students that would come in and the students didn't often see that when they came in, she would welcome them in, making, sending them notes or giving them high fives and just really enveloping them and including them in, in their little class community. And that really, I think, shows how Molly felt about people. She just, you know, she saw people or she saw an underdog and she tried to lift you up or she saw maybe a moment to be silly and she would take that moment and and run with it. You know, she loved Adam Sandler movies and she, you know, she just loved to laugh and, you know, she was just very loved. I love that. What is your favorite memory of or with Molly? There are so many. Um, I have the, I value for different reasons. Recently, I had the wonderful opportunity to see that 90s singer Tiffany in my small town out here in Cape Cod. And I was like probably the biggest, dorkiest fan there in the front row because my sister and I used to sing Tiffany songs with hairbrushes on our bed or like on the picnic table outside. And I, I just remember those moments just being free and really just happy and having fun. And, and that's one of my favorite memories because it was just so purely childlike and innocent and and before all the bad things happened and, you know, changed everything. But I love that that memory can be cherished within Tiffany's music, you right. know, and it can hit that sweet spot for you. And we're talking about Tiffany as in, I think we're alone yes. now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, that's adorable. What you don't cute. even know. And when I when I went there, I of course embarrassed myself and told her this whole story. She probably thought I was a crazy person, but she gave me she gave me a t shirt and one of her pics. And I oh and my I just gosh. like my sister would have loved that. You know, that would have been she would have been like that would have been a great story that she would she would have really appreciated. That is so sweet. I know. Thank you. <laughs> now, at your comfort level and discretion, can you talk a little bit about what happened, at least in your perspective and experience, the day that Molly went missing? It's, of course, not our intention to make you relive that horrible day, but more to catch up any listeners who may not be familiar with Molly's story and, of course, to to get your perspective and point of view on that day. Sure, sure. So as I mentioned, Molly took over um, becoming the lifeguard for our town, like my brother. He had previously been the lifeguard for three years. He was in college and just wanted to do some construction work and make more money and learn some new a trade. So he was off doing that. And, but he had trained Molly for eight days previously to June 27th. And honestly, Molly was the strongest swimmer in her class. She took the class um, a couple of towns away through the Red Cross to become a lifeguard. and. But the thing is, Molly didn't really like swimming in ponds. She was not one of those people that liked to get her feet icky. She didn't like anything icky, really. So she wasn't like one of those people that would walk around barefoot grounding or anything like that. Like she didn't go for like a morning swim out there because she only wanted to go in the water if she had to, you know what I mean? 
I can relate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Same. So she's more like a pool person. But she got this job. She was giving her best shot. The morning of June 27th was the first day of swimming lessons for the children in town. So she was kind of nervous about that. You know, she knew it was going to be more of a responsibility. And and unfortunately, that morning, a young woman who was on her softball team and a, and a good friend of hers was hit by a car, was hit by a drunk driver, and was in critical condition. So my mom had to tell her this before she went to, to work. And so she, you know, like crawled into bed and just spent like they spent some extra time together that morning. And, you know, my mom making sure that Molly was, you know, felt okay to go to work and, you know, she would check on her. And we're from a small town, like a really small town. There's probably 55 people in my graduating class. It's probably maybe double or triple that now, but it's still pretty small, you know? So you ultimately, you know, everybody in different ways. So news of this, this young woman getting hit by a car spread quickly. And so Molly was getting phone calls from everybody. And she did talk to her boyfriend before she went to um, the pond. And then she stopped at my house. Like I said, I, um, I ended up inheriting my grandmother's house when she passed away, um, which was only a mile down the street from my parents. I had gotten pregnant, surprisingly, my senior year of college. So after I, I graduated, I, I had a baby. And so I was 11 months, this is about 11 months later. So I was um, living in that house. We were, re, my fiance at the time when I were redoing the house and we were had this baby and we we're just like, you know, 22, just trying to figure out what the heck is going on in life. But we were lucky because we were close to our family. So we had had a stomach bug that weekend prior to, to that Tuesday. And so I hadn't seen, you know, Molly and my parents hadn't seen for a few days. So they wanted to stop in before she went to work and I was feeling better. And they had this like really good coffee at this special coffee shop downtown that I really loved at the time. So I asked them to just pick me up a coffee, you know, my mom to pick me up a coffee on the way back. Meanwhile, like I was like packing up because I was planning to spend the day at a pool at my friend's house um, who was coming back into town uh, or her, her mother's house. So... Well, my mom had come back and dropped the stuff off. And Molly had spent some time, you know, playing with that morning. She got to change her and like see her. And, you know, my biggest regret that day is like, I didn't kiss her goodbye because I didn't want to give her my stomach bug. I was, you know, still like worried. So usually, you know, we kissed each other goodbye all the time. So that was hard. Um, So I'm, meanwhile, I'm just trying to get this baby ready to go. And I get a call from my mom about one o'clock. Now, all this is happening like 9.30-ish um, in the morning. Molly gets dropped off about about 10 o'clock in the morning. And around one o'clock, my mom calls me in panicking, saying, Molly's not at the pond. Something's wrong. We got to go there. Something's wrong. So I say, okay, I'm, I'm on my way out the door anyway. I'll, I'll meet you at the pond. So, you know, I'm throwing the baby in the car and I where the pond is, you have to like go through downtown where the police station is first. So before I can even get to the road to where the pond is, um, I can see my mom driving like crazily and she's yelling out the window, police station, police station. So I just pull over and she pulls over and she's like, Molly's not there. Her, Molly's not there. Her shoes are there, but she's not there. Something's wrong. And like right away when they said Molly's shoes are not there, I knew something like was wrong. But here I am with this 11-month-old baby and I'm in this police station with, again, who they just had a trauma 
that morning with this young girl getting hit. So they're like, what? I think they just didn't take it seriously. I don't know. I, I would love to, you know, have a conversation with the police officers in charge again someday. But they, um, yeah, they just didn't do anything. You know, she was reported missing around 11 by one of the moms that arrived for swimming lessons. And then they used the police radio because this is 2000. And um, there wasn't cell phone service either, either at the time. So they used the police radio to call the parks commissioner who eventually like came to the pond, but then like, I don't know, nobody did anything, but these, so meanwhile, all this stuff is going over the radio and the fire department can hear it. A lot of the people in the fire department knew my family. Again, we're a small town. One person in particularly was a, the father of a good friend of mine and he owned a gas station downtown and he said, something's really wrong here. Something's really wrong. So the fire department decided to go dive and see if she drowned. So that was really the first reaction that anything happened. You know, we got to the pond, like I said, around one, they were like, people were doing organized, like unorganized searches by this time, the crime scenes, you know, obliterated. And I kept saying, to the police officer on duty that, you know, she wouldn't go anywhere without her shoes on. And he kept saying, no, she probably just took off with her friends. And I said, well, have you checked her friend's houses? And they hadn't done that. So that's when I went to some of her friend's houses in the area. They started like a phone chain calling people. I went and picked up her boyfriend and then we went back to the pond. It took like another hour or so before, like my, I think my mom went and got my brother at that point. And then he arrived When my brother arrived. He just Again, you know, people are thinking she drowned. So he, because the divers are in there and the, the searches are not, state police are not there yet, just the community members. And so, you know, John comes running and like where the pond is, it's, it's, it's really, it was a water department facility. So there's a parking lot and then there's like a little garage that was for the water department uh, where they held their stuff. And then there's like a little path that goes over like a little stream and a little bridge that goes to the pond beach and there's a beautiful pond there and it's surrounded by trails and it's really pretty, uh, but it's, you know, a dead end street and it's not, it's not like you can sit in your car and see Molly from the, from the beach. Brian Vladek Hassel, a former Marine who disappeared in November, 2021, cared deeply for the unhoused community. And in an effort to commemorate Vladek's spirit of kindness on World Kindness Day, which is November 14th, and to raise awareness about his ongoing disappearance, several podcasts, including us here at The Murder Diaries, Navigating Advocacy Podcast, and Moms and Mysteries, are joining forces to host a fundraising event. This event will provide essential items to the unhoused population in multiple cities across the nation. Paige and I have chosen the unhoused community in Los Angeles, California. So who was Brian? Brian Hassel, affectionately known as Vladek, was warm and outgoing. He's been described as the friendliest person you'll ever meet. His infectious enthusiasm for connecting with people is a defining trait. He's always eager to strike up conversations with strangers and listen to their stories. Whether you cross paths with him on the street or shared a moment in the coffee shop, Vladek's genuine interest in others was palpable. He believed in the power of human connections and, if given the chance, would eagerly offer his help to anyone in need. Vladek's absence has left a void in the hearts of all who know him, a testament to the deep impact he's had on those lucky enough to call him a friend. 
Vladek was last seen on CCTV and body camera footage at Foxtel Coffee Co. on University Boulevard in Orlando on November 6, 2021. The last confirmed encounter with Vladek took place at his apartment complex, the place at Alafea, on November 15, 2021. Unfortunately, no new information regarding his whereabouts has surfaced since that time, exactly two years ago. The fundraiser serves a dual purpose. It aims to assist the unhoused community by providing them with essential items, while simultaneously drawing attention to Vladek Hassel's disappearance and the ongoing search efforts to find him. The primary objective is to distribute a minimum of 50 drawstring bags filled with essential supplies in each city on November 14th, World Kindness Day. These bags will contain items such as deodorant, toothbrushes and toothpaste, bottled water, winter gloves, hand warmers, protein snacks, and so much more, including a picture of Vladek. Remarkably, each bag costs less than $16. So if you're asking yourself how you can get involved and make a difference, I'm gonna tell you. Step one, donate to our cause. For less than $16, a complete care package can be delivered to someone in need. Every contribution, no matter how big or small, will help us reach our goal and provide much needed supplies to those in need. Your kindness can go a long way. Step two, spread the word. Share this clip, tell your friends, and let's create a wave of kindness and generosity together. The more supporters we have, the greater our impact will be. Click the link in our show notes to head to our PayPal and make a donation today. Let's show the world the power of kindness within the true crime community. Together, we can make a tangible difference. Well, I was glad you brought up the parking lot because if I remember correctly, the day before Molly went missing, your mom and Molly were in that parking lot, your mom dropping Molly off to do her lifeguard duty. And there was a strange man in a vehicle and your mom had her women's intuition going off and said, I'm going to walk my daughter to where she needs to go. And I'm not leaving until this creepo leaves. Yep. So Molly didn't have her license yet. She only had her permit. So she would drive and then my mom would, you know, jump over to the other seat and drive back. The day before Molly, again, that was her second day by herself. She saw this guy and he was like smoking a cigarette and didn't look like he was doing anything. And again, it's like 930, 10 o'clock in the morning. So what are you doing there? Didn't look like you were fishing. So she just kind of sat there and she had a conversation about being safe with, you know, did you feel safe there? And in fact, later that night, because my mom was upset about it, I had a conversation with Molly about it. And I remember because there was a young man who had a crush on Molly. He was a couple years younger than her and he would often come down to the beach and hang out with her to keep her company. He just wanted to be around her, you know, those kinds of early teen crushes. But even though he was younger, I remember saying to Molly, you know, you had to be careful. He could still overpower you. You're all alone up there. Yeah, intuition definitely went off for all of us, I think. Um, We just didn't believe something so horrible could happen in such a small little town. But when my brother arrived, he, he ran to the beach and just started diving because he knew the water like he would swim every morning and get a workout because he you know he didn't mind the icky stuff so he felt like he knew the water better than anybody so the Warren police ended up or in the fire department had to sort of drag him out of there but I don't think the state police got called in until about six o'clock that night and then you know the sun set at like eight so you know we all had to go home and there was no 
know Molly anywhere. I remember thinking, well, maybe, you know, like as the day was progressing, at first I, you know, you just, you're in shock. You don't really know what to think. I just knew something bad had happened. I thought, well, maybe someone raped her in the woods somewhere and she's just hurt and we'll find her. And then I thought, well, maybe they took her and they'll drop her off because they don't want to deal with all this. And so I remember like, you know, you don't really sleep that night. It's just like fits of like terror, really. Um, But I remember as soon as the, the sun broke, I ran up and down the street thinking maybe he dropped her off somewhere. And and she wasn't anywhere. And they did organize a search the next day that was much larger. But my brother and I weren't allowed to participate. And then the, the state police really, when everything sort of got sorted out in the next few days, they, you know, kind of locked my parents in at their house. And, you know, it's kind of this journey of trying to figure out who could have done this to Molly. That's something I hadn't heard before that you and your brother weren't allowed to participate and that it sounds like your family wasn't allowed to be with the search party. Yeah, right away they told us, like, you don't know what to do when your child goes missing. And thankfully by then there was the National Center and there was some support groups that were parent-specific. So right away, Mark Kloss from California reached out to my parents and the National Center got involved right away and supported my parents but initially, we were not allowed to talk to the press. It took quite a few days before we got Molly's information and story out there. And you know, my parents really advocated about sharing the story and sharing the picture after that because they felt like those days, that time was lost. And they were misdirected by the advice of the law enforcement agency at the time. You mentioned that that agency was specifically geared towards parents. Were there any sorts of organizations or people there that knew how to help a sibling in this case? Because it is very different. No, right. And so in the beginning, we didn't even think of that really. And, you know, we had this case with um, Holly Peranian, who was abducted in Sturbridge in 1993. So seven years before Molly, um, she was the same age as Molly, just a younger. And it was appeared to be a more opportune you know, she was riding her bike to see puppies than, you know, maybe planned like Molly's. But certainly people look at the similarities in the cases, you know, so we thought about, you know, their family and we wondered about them. And I and the only other reference I had was that movie, I Know My First Name is Stephen, from that case out west where um, Stephen was abducted and then I think little Timothy was abducted and I don't know got away, but the whole family was a mess. So uh, John and I, you know, obviously our first priority was Molly and recovering Molly and supporting our parents. But as time went on and we would like go, like say school clothes shopping or whatever, and I'd use my debit card and someone would be like, oh, you're Molly Vicious' sister. And then they proceed to tell me like who they thought killed my sister. And I realized that people felt more comfortable saying more obtuse things to John and I than they would to our parents. And they would often couch it by saying, well, we didn't want to hurt your parents, but let us tell you this. And it really, it really messed us up for a while. And so I began asking after a couple of years of that, what about the kids, mom? Because my mom and dad would, would go meet with the parents. Eventually they, you know, became part of the National Center and, and all these coalitions. And, um, 
So they worked a lot with a lot of different families from across the country. And I'd be like, well, what about their kids? What about their kids? And so my mom kept bringing it back to the group. And eventually in 2006, the National Center and the Department of Justice got together um, and brought some selected siblings from across the country to meet together. And we developed a, a guidebook for siblings. And a, a few of us were teachers, so we we sort of built it so it could be read like you could just like pick it up. You didn't have to like go through it. We wanted to have color. We wanted it to be, we wanted activities in the back. <laughs> you know, we we were very oriented to our own experiences. We were all in different ages when we went through this. So um, honestly, it was probably the most healing experience I've had on this journey because finally after meeting them and, you know, you talk about things like, you know, like my mom's still giving me birthday and Christmas presents from Molly three years later and it's awkward and it feels weird and I don't know how to tell her that. And they could understand that without like, you know, all the other stuff people put in when they don't exactly go through what you go through. So it always felt like, you know, now I can stand anywhere and say like, okay, I'm not not the only person in the world experiencing this. So I'm not alone, at least. Do you mind going into a little bit of the suggestions you made when um, developing that program with the other siblings? Sure. Um, we talked more about like the experience. So it's not like we're like, hey, do this and everything's going to be okay. <laughs> a lot, Again, a lot of us were different ages. So um, my friend Trevor from Minnesota was in fourth grade when his brother was abducted and he had to go back to fourth grade and all the kids were like, well, why didn't you just punch that guy in the face? I would have just kicked him in the, you know, in the groin or whatever, you know, like nine, 10 year olds think. And I was 22. So my experience was different. I went back to teaching and all the kids wanted my autograph. And like, how do you tell a kid, honey, no, this just because I'm on TV or we're in this magazine right now, this is not, you know, so I would make them write like one rule for safety and I would sign it. So there isn't like one answer, but what we wanted to say was like going back to work is, or school is going to be really hard and people are going to say things to you that are inappropriate and they're going to not understand your experience and that's okay. And how you process that is okay too. Like, some of us were athletes and like to go running. Some of us were like to sing. Some of us processed in writing or speaking. I've always been fortunate, I feel like, to be able like to have these opportunities speaking on this podcast today because I get to talk about my sister. You know, I get to tell you about Molly and tell you about my experience with Molly and, and people who lose people in their lives don't often get that experience. They if you're if you're if my sister had died from cancer or from a car accident, people don't want to talk about that. That's like, ew, you know, that's bad vibes. That's sad. That's bringing the the room down, you know. And I have the privilege to be able to talk about my sister, so that allows me to process our story and our experience. And so I'm I'm lucky that way. So I think it's important to for people to know when they've lost someone that it's also okay to be like, listen, I want to talk about my brother who died from cancer or my friend who died in this motorcycle accident because I'm still not over it. You know, I'm still processing this. I want to talk about, oh, you know, how Uncle John liked this particular cake at 
Christmas time. You know, like, I mean, it's just, it's okay to talk about those things. And I think in the past and other generations, it hasn't, you know, been. And, and so we've, we did a lot of work on like just expression and communication and like a quote unquote, what a new normal would be like. That reminds me of the saying, people experience two deaths. You die the first time when your physical body goes and the second time when people stop talking about you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sounds to me what you're trying to say is like, as long as I'm able to keep talking about my sister, her memory lives on. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I actually, I've, I've been writing my own book and in reading books of other siblings who've written about their own losses, they're often in a generation older than me or maybe a couple. And in, in those generations, I think if somebody died from a, a sickness or, you know, they would pack up that child's room and they would put it away. They wouldn't talk about it. We can't talk about Sarah dying because it's too sad for your mother and we don't want to make your mother sad. And so a kid might not ever process the loss of their sis- their sibling because their parents were so afraid to open that wound up and to be raw. And, you know, I guess I was lucky with my family, you know, when we were going through this, we had these, what we called Fragile Fridays and we would all meet, you know, again, I'm 20 three at the time, my brother's 20 and my parents are now starting this foundation and, and working on the investigation. So they're really busy besides their day jobs. But we would, you know, commit to this and we'd go to this little diner in, in the next town and we'd get like fish and chips or whatever. And we would just be together. And sometimes, like most of the time, we were not in the same place in our grieving journey, you know. And sometimes we we would talk about things and oftentimes we would not. But we were together and we just held on. And I think that was another sort of message in the book that we wrote was like, you just got to hold on. Like there's, you know, there is a life after this. And, you know, it will always be a part of your life. But, you know, you do have to just kind of hold on to each other and, and keep going. The search for Molly is reported to be the largest and most expensive in Massachusetts history. What factors do you and or your family or law enforcement believe play a role in that despite it being the largest and most expensive, it taking three years to find her? Well, the recovery was the most expensive. So the search for Molly wasn't the most expensive. When she went missing, there were searches. There were dogs that were brought up. We didn't have bloodhounds in Massachusetts then. So they had to be brought up from Connecticut. So they did search, but it wasn't until the recovery. So, you know, they they worked most of their efforts after the initial searches. And supposedly there was a five-mile radius. Now, again, interpretation of what a five-mile radius is, I would think it's this way and that way. Had they done a five-mile radius, they would have found her. Had they even paid attention, I have phone logs from the weeks after Molly disappeared. The weeks before and the weeks after, so I can get some context of why the law enforcement agency um, in Warren, Massachusetts, reacted the way that they did. And there were calls into the police department for birds over Whiskey Hill, which is where Molly was found. People were calling in. There's a large amount of birds. They went there and they found a big pile of fish. And instead of investigating further, they just 
dismissed it as, oh, that was just that somebody dumped some fish there. But why would somebody dump a big pile of fish there? Maybe they're trying to cover up the smell of a body rotting. Like, I don't know. Uh, why decisions were made the way they were and that hindered us. You know, again, the crime scene was not protected. So that made a huge difference in, in any DNA. Um, and, and right away, <laughs> the Warren Police Department also was like indicating, they just kept saying Molly took off with friends. They kept acting like she was like, like it wasn't serious. Like she was in Florida or something. And, and so they were kind of, steering the state police in the wrong direction. State police spend a lot of time on the boyfriend, which absolutely understandable, necessary piece of an investigation. But once you saw the radius of sex offenders, which we, again, didn't know at the time. I mean, we didn't even lock our doors. If we'd known, maybe we'd have done things differently. But there was such a large amount of sex offenders in that area. That took so much time to go through. So they were really just following leads after the initial search. But the recovery, because a man, the hunter found the bathing suit and he mentioned it to like an ex-cop who knew circumstances of the case and they found the bathing suit three years later. That's when we were just very fortunate that there was a doctor in uh, Marie Myers was in the medical examiner's office at the time. She's a forensic anthropologist. So she has a lot of experience. Like she, you know, does digs when the rich people in Cape Cod hit a bone out here. She's the one making sure if it's a, a Native American or, or not and, and doing the procedures that need to be in place. So she's very, very good. So she's the one who designed this approach, which was an anthropological approach and has been adopted since for Molly's recovery. And that's what gave us the best ability to recover Molly's body because if you know Massachusetts at all, we have bobcats out here and bobcats traverse certain pathways. And that particular pathway was a bobcat pathway. So Molly's bones were spread out over these 500 acres. Um, we were fortunate that we were able to find the skull and which was what led us to being able to identify her quicker. You mentioned some misinformation that went out initially about the case. You know, they went and looked at the boyfriend. They said that she went out with friends. Is there any other misinformation about the case that you want to clear up for anyone that may hear this? Yeah, I think there was a lot of talk about a particularly party that Molly was at. In 2006, we had a grand jury before John Conti went out as DA and Joe Early took over. And in that grand jury, there was a lot of talk about this particular party. And my ex-husband and I were questioned quite a few times about being at this party. And we're like, we had a baby. Like, we're not partying with 16-year-olds. Like, I don't I don't understand what, what this was all about. And they really focused on these kids that were 16. And 16-year-olds are 16. And they're doing 16-year-old things to sort of defy their parents and try out this independence that they're feeling and you know uh, but they were not making crystal meth they weren't doing anything they weren't even there wasn't any major drugs involved maybe a little marijuana but the kids took a really bad hit in this case and they were really dragged through the mud and I I can't imagine how hard that must have been at 16 years old thank god there wasn't social media then like there is now, because I think that would have been, I don't know, more of a nightmare. But I think 
about them often and the impact. And, you know, a lot of Molly's friends have since died from accidents and addiction. I think that they were sort of lost and and damaged in this. And I always feel bad that more wasn't done to really say that the kids were just kids. They weren't responsible or there wasn't secret drug deals going on. There wasn't, this isn't like any, any of the TV shows. It, it was just kids, you know, being kids. In 2004, your parents collaborated with Anna Maria College to create the Molly Bish Center for the Protection of Children and the Elderly. Can you talk about this center and how it impacts the children and elderly it helps today? Oh, absolutely. So my father uh, really wanted to start the center at Anna Maria because Anna Maria College is sort of in the center of Massachusetts and it's a liberal arts school and is very um, focused on like um, human service work, like social workers and EMTs. And it had a large criminal justice program. And in our work um, in the foundation, we learned that law enforcement sometimes has a hard time interacting with other departments. So we really wanted to encourage um, some cross-collaboration and cross-education. And so the intent at the start was to promote any kind of trainings and workshops and, and things like that. And we still are doing that. We just have been a part of doing some of the NamUs events, which is our one of the data systems you put missing people into to get some of our people to understand and know what it is and become aware of it, but for law enforcement to become aware of it and also comfortable using it. So that's one of the recent trainings that we've been um, supporting. But my father had a stroke in 2007. My mom really had to spend a lot more time um, taking care of his health. And so at that point, I sort of took over more of the foundation responsibility and the investigation responsibility and the role at Anna Maria College. So we've done a lot. We've done some NetSmart's work. We've done a lot of education and training around computer safety. When my mother retired, we took over the child ID kits. So we're up to, I think, 850,000 child identification kits that we've provided free of charge to people across New England, really. So right now, we're actually working on a project where we're building, we're emulating in Boston, they have a garden of peace for murdered, child murdered victims. And it's kind of, there's too many people. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could emulate that in, in Central Mass? And again, having that central location and being this beautiful country environment, we have the ability to sort of make a beautiful area where we could bring people to to the school and and let them know what the resources are are available and the different programs that they offer there. So we're building a garden of hope and it will be for um, missing and murdered victims in, in the Central Mass area. So that will be revealed in September. So, we, you know, we, we kind of work on what inspires. We have a small committee that we look at different projects each year and we identify our goals and keep plugging away. It's great to, I love, because I'm in education, utilizing the students and getting them involved. I've been working so much in legislation the last few years. We actually do a legislative breakfast at Anna Maria. And uh, it's really great to incorporate the students in the advocacy and the, um, you know, sort of hitting up those state reps <laughs> for what we need. 
speaking of the state of Massachusetts, news was shared on TikTok that Governor Healy is set to establish a missing persons unit in Massachusetts. How would this upcoming missing persons unit have impacted or changed the course of Molly's case and will impact and how will it impact future cases? So, yeah, we, I was really excited when Governor Healy um, came into office because she's been a longtime supporter of Missing Children's Day and missing children's issues. Unfortunately, she proposed this budget and this unit, and it was not supported by the legislation for reasons I, I, I don't know. Um, so I don't know that she can sort of create this unit without their approval and budget. So unfortunately, that looks like that might not actually happen. Um, our hope was that we, I was part of the Mass Missing Persons Task Force for a few years through COVID. And we put together a report based on doing a lot of research. And uh, we had a, a lot of different people on this committee, people that were working in law enforcement, people that were advocates like me, people that were in uh, DCF, people that were in law. So there's a lot of players that went into this and we made some recommendations that we felt like there should be a unit under the Executive Office of Public Safety that would provide the ability not to be attached to the state police, but to be able to work with the state police, be able to provide um, support for the data systems. We're very concerned about NamUs and NCIC not interacting together and, and law enforcement not necessarily knowing, again, about these data systems and how important they are. We felt like had, that there should be a missing persons coordinator for Massachusetts. We have had so many cases recently where women and, and even in Boston, young men going missing um, inexplicably. And uh, again, law enforcement gets like minimal training on missing persons cases. So we really felt strongly that training was something that this unit could provide to law enforcement. And then we recommended some changes with the uh, forensics and adding some more forensic people in our in our departments. You know, we are in Massachusetts, we have all these amazing colleges and great forensic programs. And then everybody leaves the state because there aren't any jobs here. Like it, it, it to me, like in Molly's case, what would make a difference if the freaking forensic guy was on the scene from the minute they heard Molly wasn't there. You know, not Joe Schmo cop who took crime scene analysis 10, 15 years ago, one class. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I'm sort of of the mindset that law enforcement needs to sort of develop into sort of having these different specialties. Maybe we have a forensic team, you know, like we're not just hiring guys that have criminal justice backgrounds. Like I'd like to see scientists doing the science. I'd like to see social workers doing the counseling. <laughs> You know what I mean? Not that to say that there's a need for security and and those positions. I'm certainly a supporter of law enforcement. I would just like to see it ironed out differently um, because I I do think that there is a huge lack of training and that was detrimental to Molly's case. They didn't know what to do. They blamed what was easy and what they were biased towards. And that bias really cost my sister her life. Will you talk a little bit about what your life has been like as a sister of a missing person? Yeah, yeah. It's been, you know, my life was totally changed that day. I have a fear in me and I look at the world in a different way that other people do. And, you know, often people will say, 
but they imagine that I raised my daughter differently than I would have had this not happened to me. And I imagine that I, I would have, but um, miraculously, she's survived it. Um, I just, I think something like this changes how you interpret the world. And the world is scarier to me. And I know things that other people don't know. Like, I think people often want to think that there's one bad guy that killed my sister and probably killed Holly Pranian too. And he's probably dead and we don't have to worry about him anymore. But what I know is that people who have abuse happen in their childhood, like monsters don't become monsters out of the blue. They don't fall from the sky. They get that way from people doing bad things to them. And so there's this sadness that you feel, this empathy towards the monster. But the monster makes the choice to hurt other people. And there's a lot of monsters out there. And they are your soccer coach. They're your singer in your favorite band. They are favorite actor. They're the guy delivering your newspaper. They're your priest. You know, and we have a hard time seeing some people as being monsters because they're not supposed to be and they're not looking like monsters. They don't sound like monsters and they don't always act like a monster. But I know that the monster is inside and hides and there's a lot, lot more of them than I'd ever possibly imagine. And so it does make the world a little harder to interpret sometimes. And people protect monsters. I mean, I think in psychology, they call them the flying monkeys. It can be more apropos, I think, because I just spent a lot of time thinking about how the Rodney Stangers and the Frank Sumners become those people. And like, how do they, how are they still married? How are they still, you know, because the people are also caught up in abuse cycles and they're part of that trauma bonding and it's just so, um, you know, I think the more you know, the skinnier it is. Yeah. And I think that that's a lot of times where avoiding victim blaming as much as possible is so important. Like you said, mm-hmm. you can't blame somebody, say, married to a serial killer for being married to them if they never knew because they're probably finding out when you found out because they never got to see that monster inside until mm-hmm. later, or they are in a dangerous abuse cycle. You just don't know. So that's a very good sentiment. It's something that I think would be kind of great to to end with as we sort of wind up today is a quote from your dad. <laughs> Maggie and I can't change what happened to Molly, but we can try to stop it from happening again. This is so resilient it almost breaks my heart hearing it. And I just want to give him a, like a big hug. Such a beautiful quote. Certainly taught us, even before Molly disappeared, that, you know, service, they were very service oriented. You know, we grew up Catholic, but it was more in the way of serve, like serving the needy, you know, and learning that part of the Bible and Jesus. And when, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money, my mom didn't work because she had that extra kid and you know things were tight but they still always bought extra mittens and gloves for the kids who didn't have any and then when when molly disappeared they thought oh my god other parents don't know this this is like again all of a sudden a a sudden lesson in in child safety and, and criminology in our own backyards and they just felt that 
they had to share that and that they couldn't imagine another family experiencing what we had to experience and and sort of having to navigate it and figure out what to do on our own. Thanks for everything you've shared today. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I guess I would just say, I think that Molly's legacy has continued to be that, you know, I've carried on from my parents' first steps with the foundation and the governor is actually going to be appointing me to the Mass Office of Victim Assistance in Massachusetts, which is a board that helps um, support victims and their families and helps appropriate um, funding for different agencies to support victims. And I'm really, really flattered by this because I've been working so hard to talk about just being a victim of a crime like this. Like, we didn't get a, a victim advocate when Molly was missing because it wasn't a crime yet. They didn't know what happened to her. They were like, oh, maybe she ran away. She's with her friends. We don't know if she's abducted yet. Until they found her body, did we get a victim advocate? And so it's really important to me to sort of talk about this whole area of missing persons and missing children and, and their families and the support that's needed um, moving forward. Congratulations on that appointment. That is such a testament to your service to this community, if you will, and to those in power that are seeing it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Before we leave today, do you have any socials that you'd like to plug for our listeners? Yes. Yes. Like I said, I've, I've, I've been working on this book. So I've been writing a blog on our website, um, it's mollybishfoundation.com. So you can see sort of more more intimate stories about our experiences in um, in this journey. I've also got a TikTok account that I utilize for the investigation and any foundation stuff. Again, I'm hoping to be putting my own podcast together. So I hope to utilize my TikTok account to really share some of the people that I'll be going over um, on Molly's case. As I as I dive in deep. <laughs> Again, I thank you for sharing everything that you have today and for all of your time. No, oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate what you guys are doing. I know it's not easy, <laughs> but it's so helpful, you know, especially, you know, I'm I'm kind of a talker, so I can kind of I can kind of navigate that, but there's so many families that struggle with getting their stories out there and sharing their stories and I just think it's it's such a powerful impact to have these podcasts that are geared towards really sharing. Make sure you follow us on all of our socials at the Murder Diaries Pod. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.